America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 12. Hi, this is Peter Rivera, original drummer and lead singer of Rare Earth. And you're listening to America's Oldies But Goodies, and it's just been a joy talking with Dick, and I hope you listen to the podcast, and thank you very much for being there. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day Hey everyone, and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past. We're visiting the 60s with host Dick Scapatoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back then called Feelin' Groovy. He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests, and pretty much everything that happened in the swingin' 60s. So, Dick, who's on today's show? Thank you, John. In 1970, Motown started an affiliated record label that included certain bands with white members only, and Rare Earth happened to be the first big hit-making act signed for Motown's new imprint label. The record company didn't actually have a name for the new label yet, and one of the band members jokingly suggested that they call the label Rare Earth. To the band's surprise, Motown decided to do just that, and what followed was Rare Earth on Rare Earth. And what followed that was Get Ready, and I just want to celebrate Peter Rivera, their drummer for those exciting years, will be with us in just a moment. For retro and vintage merchandise, you'll find some fabulous buys at Dick's website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Autograph records, tiki mugs, golf memorabilia, even a Paul McCartney signed album cover. Check it out at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. By the way, you can listen to every episode of our show there too. That's americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. 
It all began in Detroit when Motown signed a group of white guys called Rare Earth who proceeded to cover a couple of Temptation songs, one of which was Get Ready, and it turned out to be their biggest hit, peaking at number four on the Billboard Hot 100. It wasn't too long after that that they found themselves appearing in front of massive crowds like the California Jam Festival, which attracted 250,000 people. That turned out to be just the opening salvo in what has now become almost a 50-year journey that began when they started appearing alongside 70s rock groups like Black Sabbath, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Deep Purple. Their original drummer, Peter Rivera, is still performing today, and he crosses paths with his old band members from time to time. So, Peter, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Dick. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, I understand you got good weather today up there in Spokane. Yeah, beautiful. That's lucky. Well, it's not lucky for that side of the mountains. It's lucky for the the uh, Bellevue Seattle site uh, side of the mountains. But uh, Spokane, usually, I I think, don't you have pretty good weather most of the time? Yeah. Well, we don't get the rain that Seattle gets, even though we're in the same state. It's because they have the mountains. The rain has to go across the mountains, and lots of times doesn't. I lived for a brief period of time in Issaquah, which is just outside of Seattle, and of course I had the rain all the time. I, ma- I managed to last four years over there. So let's start with the whole process of rare earth. To take us way back before rare earth, you can go back as far as you want, before high school if you want. Begin at the beginning and just bring us up through the rare earth time frame. I was just a little neighborhood boy in Detroit and started taking some lessons. Well, I took about three lessons. I was pretty bored with, you know, trying to learn right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. <laughs> I just wanted to play to songs, so I would do that in the basement. I'd go down there, and, and uh, up on a cinder block, I had an old-time radio, and I'd play with songs I heard, you know, as well as I could play. But I just did that day in and day out all the time. Little Richard, Carl Perkins, then here comes Elvis. I mean, just all this fun stuff. Did you have a drum set? I did not. I had sticks and a pad when I started lessons. And eventually I got a snare drum and and then a little 12-inch cymbal. I think I got some funky old bass drum to play with, but I really wanted a set. You know, a couple of years into this, I was probably 12, 13. And so I got a couple of paper routes and, you know, tried to get, we didn't have a lot of money. So my my dad actually refied the house to get money to buy me a set. And then I paid him back with my paper routes. Isn't that something? Uh, yeah, it was great that they would do that. You know, I look back on it. That must have been a hardship because I remember one time going to my lesson and I was tapping on my leg with a stick, I had the book open. And my dad's driving, he says, what are you doing? I says, I'm practicing my lesson. He says, well, you've had all week. Don't you know your lesson? I says, well, brushing up, you know. And he kind of got upset about that because he thought I was fluffing off. And, and, boy, he smacked the dashboard of the car, and he told me, he says, I stand on my feet for an hour and a half to make the money for that lesson. And I just kind of went, oh, you know, maybe this is not good. So I quit taking lessons and then just went on my own. And I would come home from school at, you know, 3 o'clock, and I'd go downstairs till about 6.30, and my dad would 
bang his foot on the floor and uh, come up for dinner. I'd come up, and as soon as I was done, I went back down until like 9 o'clock when my, they put a curfew on the noise in the neighborhood. So I just did that every day. That's that's what I did. I loved it so much. And sometimes, you know, I didn't do homework. And, uh, you know, I just kind of skated through school a little bit. So you're in the basement, so that trapped a certain amount of the sound from the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, but still, the neighbors could hear you, I assume. Well, yeah, because the windows were open in the summer. You know, we didn't have air conditioning. We just had windows open and carried through the neighborhood. But nobody ever really complained. In fact, people used to say, ah, oh, we like hearing you practice your drums. And, you know, I was just a kid, you know. Anyways, I met a couple guys in school who were guitar players, new newbies like me, and we would get together and practice. And I mean, I th- it took us months to learn like two or three songs. And you know, after we were doing Dwayne Eddy because of guitar players, you know. Yeah, sure. And uh, during that time, I would play like church social or something like that. Well, anyways, this one. Social. This a couple guys were there from a band in the in the neighborhood. They were much older than me, about three years older. They saw me play and invited me over for an audition. I told my dad that I carried my drums over. You know, my dad says, "Why the hell didn't you learn harmonica?" You throw it in your pocket. You know? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that kind of stuff. And uh, so I practiced with the, with the band. They were originally called the Glowworms, and they changed their name to the Sunliners. So we were the Sunliner, and feeling like big time, you know. We played a few shows, like I said, and eventually we ventured out and, and got a, a job at a nightclub that was, a, you know, biggest dump in Detroit, you know. So we went there five days a week, and it wasn't too many weeks after that that we had huge crowds, lines out the door and all, because we were really a good band. We would practice songs on the radio, the hits, and we'd play the hits for the people, and and we worked hard on, on capturing the essence of the songs, and we just started to go to another club and another club pretty soon. I mean, after about two years, we made it to the biggest club in the city. Now we're wearing suits and ties and everything else. We're playing six nights a week. It's a club cliche. We're making money. We're all buying our, our new cars. And mm. Everything was good. And, you know, dating, I mean, we're 20, 21, just having a great time. Never did think about records. One night there was a guy there that wanted, came up and pitched us to be our manager. And yeah, we didn't know. So anyway, we took him on. And he had a partner. He met, he got a partner, his friend, who was a hairdresser. And while he the hairdresser was doing hair of Barry Gordy's ex-wife. Huh? Margaret Gordy, so he was in her ear all the time, you know, about this band he was co-managing. Yeah. So eventually we, uh, you know, he talked her into coming to the club one night to see us. So, gosh, I mean, it's almost like we had to throw rose petals for her to walk in, you know. Oh, gee, yeah. The manager never really let us talk to her much other than saying hello. He sat with her. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we played and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden he comes walking up and says, hey, you got a chance to go into Motown. Got us a week. We couldn't get there until 2, 2.30 in the morning. We'd set up real quick. We'd play. We were going to record. We didn't know what to record because we had no original songs. So we just picked the 
five or six, seven songs that were the most popular in the club. And we recorded that. I mean, it was all very green. The Get Ready song, I tell people this story that when we got done, everybody, everybody did a song. I did a couple vocally. The engineer says, well, look, you're 10 minutes short on the space on the album. So we went back in and said, well, let's do Get Ready. And everybody takes solos. So we did. And I mean, we didn't take several takes of this song. It was like once and we're done. And the engineer nodded from the control room. Hey, that's good, you know. So now we had our album. Well, we didn't know. So they offered us a contract, which at the time, we didn't know how to negotiate contracts. So we, the manager guy had a friend who was a divorce attorney. So he stepped in to be our attorney. And in the negotiations, he never asked for any kind of stipulation in contracts that would benefit us. He just went with it and... We were all excited, so we signed the contract. It turns out years and years later, but we signed away everything, really. That's amazing. Gee. We got a royalty, but we had studio costs against the royalty. Yeah, that's common. That's the uh, same thing. Uh, we were with Warner Brothers, and, and it was the same thing. And But because most of our sessions were... Uh, involved a lot of musicians in in many cases upwards of 30 musicians our recording costs were through the roof warners paid for it but when yeah. it came to getting royalties they took their money back first before they they paid us so uh, it right. sounds like a, a standard uh, 1960s record contract well fortunately our uh, recording costs for that first album were only i think five thousand dollars so when we sold a million records, they got paid back real quick, and we actually got two royalty checks, one for producer and one for artist. Huh? And I think it was about like $30,000 wow. each. Yeah. Then we had to give 20% of that to the manager. Right. Who, for quite a while, had fronted us little salaries, you know. So not only did we give them 20% of everything we sold, but we had to pay him back two of the money he loaned us in the form of a salary. Yeah, yeah. So our the checks were, you know, chopped up pretty good. How many guys were in the group at that point? There was five. There was five. Yeah. And then right. we brought in Eddie to make six. But uh, that's the only royalty checks I've ever gotten. Is that right? Amazing. Yeah, because our second album recorded in the same studio, maybe... Maybe two weeks long or two to three weeks long, but now our costs were like eighty grand. Yeah, crazy. So you know, same studio, same everything, but now it's eighty instead of five. So that was the game going on, and they wanted us to record more and more. And every time they had pictures taken of us, that went against our uh, accounts payable. And sure. Any publicity at all, they did that too. So we never got any more money. We made money on live shows. Right, on the road. That was it. Sure. But I hear that these days, some of these young groups, the music, the record company is taking part of their live shows, too, nowadays. Is that right? So Yeah. So I've heard several big-time guys say that they feel sorry for these new artists because they just don't get anything. So it, it was prehistoric, you know, and there was no sophistication on the side of the artists. But anyway... We, we started getting one, two, three hit records, and we started doing shows, and no money. Then all of a sudden, there was a little money, and then when we climbed the ladder and became the headliner, well, that different story. So we'd go out, and we'd play a bunch of shows and make a, 
nice pile of money and bring it back and put it in the bank because we formed a corporation and we paid ourselves salaries. Okay. So that when, yeah, when we're home for three weeks, we still had a paycheck every week. Then Motown decided that they were going to move to California. And we, him and Hod, but we finally moved with Motown. And once our manager, who, uh, I hate to talk him now, he's deceased now, but he was not a good manager. He didn't really know what he was doing, but the one thing he did, he was very paranoid. So he uh, took us out to California and then kind of wined and dined us and took guys around in limousines to see houses to get us all to buy a house so we got a mortgage, so we got to work. He's got his 20% out of everything and all that he could steal. You know, and, uh, It got to be big and real difficult to uh, police the situation. So we had a really top-notch attorney who is my friend to this day. And he he negotiated Elton John and BGs and Saturday Night Fever and all these big things. He's a really big-time attorney. And he made us get uh, this retired bookkeeper, Izzy Sherwitz, to come to the office all the time and keep tabs on the money. So we'd go out and do 10, 10 shows at 10 grand. We'd come back with 100 grand, and Izzy would say, there's only 85 here. Oh. Where'd the other 15 go? So Izzy was always catching things like that. So we'd have our meetings and argue, and, well, they needed to spend this on that and that on this. Ah, it started to get pretty bad, you know? So then the fighting started. People wanted more money, and they were upset with the manager. And I was kind of the leader, and so I would say, okay, guys, let's go in and sit down and air our grievances. And I'd get them all, we'd have a meeting, and we'd get there, and nobody would say a word. And I'd say, well, why don't you speak up and say what you just told me? And they wouldn't do it, because, you know, it was a time of drugs, you know. And oh, yeah. the manager would always supply pretty good drugs. Yeah. And so people became apathetic about it, if that's the right word. So they wouldn't attack him, because they don't want to cut off that supply line. just got real silly, you know, real silly. Okay, I'm hearing a song trying to squeeze in here. Let's shift gears, take a quick break, and listen to the music. Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central, Monday morning rail Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Twenty-five sacks of mail All along the southbound Odyssey The train pulls out at Kankakee And rolls along past houses, farms, and fields Passing trains that have no name Freight yards full of old black men what was it like working just within the whole Motown system? Was that a pretty structured place to... Well, Motown, you know, Barry Gordy worked in a car uh, manufacturing and, and production line, you know, put the trans in, put the motor in. So Motown was structured like this. There were writers that wrote, producers produced, artists sang. And whenever a producer had an idea about Oh, Diana Ross or Marvelous or anybody, he would come in with his idea for four songs, 
so he'd get what they called notes. So the notes said he could record a bass, drum, guitar, uh, keyboard, the, the track. Then the committee, the committee listened to what he was doing, and they, okay, proceed. So now he could get the singer in to work on the song, and then he could get the background singers in. And then if they liked that, then he could put in what they called the sweetening, which was strings and stuff like that. So that's how it worked. And we came to Motown and we said, no, all we want to do is go in the studio with an engineer, shut the door, and we'll come out in a week and we'll do our thing. And boy, they, the administrative staff just didn't know how to handle that. There were no notes or anything. They just opened the studio for us. And, and we, you know, we made a lot of changes to the studio. When we first got to Motown, the headphone system was just one headphone in one of your ears. And we said, well, where's the stereo phones? And we said, we don't have, we're not wired for that. And we said, well, <laughs> let's wire it. So we jimmied it up so it worked. And then Stevie Wonder came in, and he liked the two phones so much that, you know, he could wave his hand and get things done because he was a big star. Yeah. And so they rewired the studio for the latest, greatest stereo phones. And so now that's the norm, you know. Those innovations were things that we brought to the and then one thing, we used to be in the studio recording, and in the control room, people would walk in, you know, other artists, other producers, and there'd be sometimes six, eight, ten people in the control room while we're recording. And we said, well, yeah, okay, so it's Marvin and it's other other artists and things, and, but they were distracted, distracting to us. So we put our roadie at the door and it says, nobody comes in our studio anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, Marvin Gaye was in the studio next door. We were sitting there talking to him in between stuff. And uh, Marvin says, well, what are you doing with this door thing? So we told him the whole reason. And the next night, he had a guard at his door. Really? Huh. Yes, sir. It's another little innovation to the privacy. Well, that whole scene, I mean, it sounds so structured if you wanted to do any writing was there any problem getting your own tunes on the albums or how did that whole thing work we were new writers going up against you know holland doja holland and nick and dino other writers there and our producer was trying to find songs from writers everywhere but every song had to be published by joe bett publishing which motown owned and most of the time we came up with a song the producer was, he was trying to do things according to the company structure. So our songs were not really accepted or, uh, you know, they were a lot different than some of the songs Motown was recording at the time. So we never got a single. We'd record some of our songs on an album, but there was never any talk of what, you know, that's, where's the single? Where's the single? Well, okay. Losing You, okay, Born to Wander, Hey Big Brother. I mean, we got hits, great, we were excited about that, but our stuff was never really considered. And I think part of it, I'm just taking a wild guess, but you're dealing with a situation there where the, the revenue is one of the uh, holy things that's got to be kept in place, and certainly uh, music publishing revenue you know, yeah. is yeah. potentially millions of dollars. Do you remember who wrote I Just Want to Celebrate? Yeah, it was Nick, Nick Fakaris and Dino, I know, Dino Fakaris and Nick Zesis. Okay, yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is, this one time they brought in Tony Clark, who produced the Moody Blues, brought him in from England. 
And we met with Tony, and he says, look, guys, and we sat in a circle, and he says, we're going to write this whole album right here, right now. So we sat in a circle, and we came up with four or five ideas and started hammering them out, and none of the songs were Joe Betts at all. And it wasn't long that there was a problem somehow, and Tony was relieved of duty, and he was gone. Jeez, see what's going on? Oh. And, then they, and then they got a guy named Frank Wilson, who it was a mainstay at Motown. He had Marvin Gaye and, and Martha Reeves. I think Frank did a lot of things. And he came in <clears throat> to the studio and brought in songs from writers. We started fooling around in the studio, and then we had a problem. Mark Olson, our old keyboard player, he's deceased too now, he had a song that he wanted to do. And we talked about it, and I'm sitting over here going, you know, Mark, that song, that's not a hit. You know, I said, and then our record sales were starting to go down, take a slow ride down. Our concerts were still happening, but Mark and Ray came after we had already recorded Get Ready, Born to Water, and Losing You. So they were a little resentful of having to do those songs live, although those were our first three hits. Yeah. They wanted to do something of their own. So there was a lot of squeaky wheel stuff going on. And so one day, Frank Wilson, we went in the studio, and he pulls out this song. And I recognized it right away. It was the song Mark had written. So they had gone to Frank Wilson and leaned on him to do this. So we had a meeting around a big table in the office. And I said, Frank, why are we doing this song? And he kind of didn't know what to say, you know. And Mark was standing there, and I said, are you doing this song simply to put grease on the squeaky wheel? I said, because if that's the case. And then the guys were talking a little bit about the reason our hits went downhill is because it was time for a different singer. And actually, that singer would be Mark. And Mark, forgive me, he was not a singer. He just didn't have a, you know, didn't have that kind of voice. But So anyway, there was that beef going on. And I just told him, I said, we're going to do that song just for the squeaky wheel thing. Then I won't sing anything anymore. Nothing. That kind of scared Frank Wilson. And then Harry Balk, the big-time A&R guy, come in, and he was going to, like, soothe us over with of this battle we were having. It didn't work. I just told Barry, uh, Barry, I, I said, I'm saying these songs, we had hits on them. I said, the reason we don't have hits is we don't have material that is hit worthy. Because when you've got a hit song that's a hit song, a lot of different people could sing it. Oh, sure. So anyways, I knew right then we had quite a problem going on. Yeah, that was potentially the beginning of the end. Was Frank Wilson, I wonder if he was thought he was going to get some uh, publishing money off that uh, tune. Oh, I don't think so. I think Barry Gordy, you know, it's it's Joe Bat all the way. Frank got paid uh, front, front money, you know, who knows, they might have paid him at that at that year, uh, maybe 25 grand. Yeah to do the album, plus royalties. So every royalty that Frank got and every advance money that Frank got, guess who paid it back? Yeah, oh, jeez. Here we go again. Yeah. We had no say-so over who they hired. They had, when, when I was doing the uh, our second album, we already had Born to Wander a hit on there. And then we had, uh, they brought in, they didn't think that we were going to pull it off too well, so they brought in Norman Whitfield. 
And Norman was a successful producer, you know, with the Pimps and, and mm-hmm. Rolls Royce and a few others. He came in and did one song, Losing You, and he tried to do it a long song, so it was like on the heels of Get Ready for the first album. And it was a cool song. I still love doing it. But Lord knows what they paid him. They might have paid him 50 grand up front. Sure. So we owe, we owe that, too. You yeah. know? He was a big name. I, I remember that name. What do you consider to be among your most notable successes? You mean musically? Yeah, either either way, yeah, yeah. musically or, or even personally. Just to... I'm sitting here right now, 50 years into this, and I look back on it and I go, hey, I was very successful at raising a family, producing the kids, and my three kids are all adults. They're all working now. They had professional sports careers. They didn't get into drugs. They're not alcoholics. They've never been in jail. So that's a success, actually. But musically speaking, having hit records and being in the top ten and doing all those concerts, that's a tremendous success. Yeah. You know, it's it's like if you do what you love and what your love produces for you, you're successful. I'm, I'm very successful in what I did. I might not be a rich man, but I was at times very rich. I squandered a lot of money, you know, back in those days, but still managed to be here right now today. Yeah. And not I don't owe anybody anything, and, and uh, I still do shows, still get paid. And I've got some money saved that will probably get me through the rest of my life. I'm not going to be buying Ferraris and 50-foot yachts, <laughs> right. you yeah. know, like some people, but I don't I don't need that. I don't. It's not what I'm after. I'm only after, I want to laugh, I want to be healthy, and I just want to enjoy people around me and friends and enjoy playing. Like this politics thing that's going on, you know, I know how I feel about things, but good Lord, I'm so sick of the crap that they're all into. It's just, I'm so turned off with it now. So anyways, successes. I'm I'm sitting here right now. That's successful. I didn't die on the way to the phone. Yeah, right. That is successful. You know, one of the things that I've kind of noticed that's very subtle, and maybe you're noticing it too, uh, coming through, you know, the early years, 20s and 30s, and then, uh, you know, as you start getting a little older, there's always pretty much a compulsion to make money. The idea of making a lot of money is sort of near the top. But I've found now I'm 71 that that urge to make money really doesn't seem to be in the top spot anymore. It's not I'm not saying I don't want to make money. I'm simply saying that's not the driver anymore. Do you do you find that? Absolutely. It's not the driver. I mean, yeah, it's not. I, I look at some of these people who are just filthy, filthy rich. And what they went through in their life, I could never do that. I could never go through that. And sometimes I'll feel a little down in the dumps, like I'm a little bit intimidated by people around me who are very wealthy and all that. And, and my girlfriend reminds me, as my wife did too, she said, you know, most of these people would give their eye tooth to do what you did. Yeah. And my, my girlfriend now... Who's very, she's a psychologist and just a great woman. She'll she'll tell me she said, you've had a life that very few people get to get to have. She says you started playing drums when you're ten and you haven't stopped and that's all you've ever had to do. And the money came and you paid your bills, you bought your house, you financed your kids. And, you know and things got tight, then they got loose, tight, loose. So 
it's all, I've always said that I played because I loved what I did, and the money followed. I never really went after the money. And I would, I mean, I just, I'd never throw a game, you know what I mean? I go on stage, and if there's, if there's 10,000 people, fabulous. I do the same show if there's 62 people, because I can't do it any other way. If I'm going to be who I claim I was through my records, then I've got to perform it like my records and be like that so that people go, yeah, that's what he is, you know? And that might be partially notable for maybe groups in the 60s and 70s. I can't speak for groups later on because the music business uh, seemed to shift over maybe late 70s to where it was much more about attorneys and making deals. But I know when we were making music, just like when you were in that essentially the same time frame, the, it, the making music came first, the money followed. It, it wasn't the reverse of that. I mean, we, we did it because we had a ball doing it. Uh, you know, made a few bucks. Great. Loved it. But that's not why we were doing it. We were doing it because we had a great time doing it. So, yeah, I mean, look, money is, there's nothing wrong with money. It's, it's the security. It's security that we want to do what we want to have all that secure so we can do what we love to do. Yeah. And it's really double great when what you love to do provides the security, too. Because I know so many people, guys who are, Oh man, lawyers or accountants or big time this, big time that, and they're part time drummer or piano player or they play guitar. Oh yeah, we just, we play guitar at our picnics and I've always played guitar, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, why do some guys get hits and others don't? I don't know. Right place, right time. Yeah, that's a tough question there. I'm not sure anybody knows the answer. If We'd all be fabulously rich if we actually knew the answer to that. I think it's time to give our guests a breather here. I'll cue up the turntable and be back in a smidge. Station with my suitcase in my hand Going back where I came from I've had more than I can stand Of watching them destroy my dreams They picked my brain till it was clean When I was up, they knocked me down I ain't gonna hang around I'm going I'm going home. You know, just talking about people in the business, who who are some of the most memorable people that you worked with? Sly and the Family Stone was pretty impactful to me. He came along with this R&B group thing, you know, right in the late 60s there. Oh, gosh, I've met so many people and admired so much that they do. Memorable people. Well, I met Jimi Hendrix at the Atlanta Pop Festival and Sly and Family Stone. Doobie Brothers were all good friends. Steely Dan. And, uh, you know, Ray Charles, for instance. Ray Charles is my all-time favorite singer. All-time. Yeah. And never met him. And my son was playing baseball and he was at an away game and they were in Dallas. And my son come out of the hotel. He's standing out in front of the hotel, fooling with his little camera. 
And he looks up, and here comes Ray Charles with a guy on his arm. And they come out of the hotel, and they walk by him, and, and he kind of nods and all that. And uh, the guy puts Ray into the car. And then he's starting to walk around the car, and my son says, You know, if my dad was here, I wish my dad was here because Ray had blah, 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 blah. And the guy says, Well, who's your dad? And he told him. So the driver gets in the car, and my son's standing there, and the back window goes down, electric window. And Ray sticks his head out the window, and he goes, Young man, are you still there? And he says, I am, Mr. Charles. How you doing? And, and Ray says, Do me a favor, young man. You tell your father that I liked all his records. <laughs> I mean, that was cooler than can be. Isn't that really, that he would be that nice yeah. to say that? Yeah. But Stevie Wonder, it's just, you know, we're, we're friends, we don't go bowling together, but we're friends, you know, and Stevie and then, you know, Diana Ross and a lot of Motown people I knew and was pretty impressed with, you know, and then, but I'd meet Sinatra and I'd meet, uh, well, I met the Beatles at a party. Oh, yeah. It's when John Lennon broke his leg and I went up and I said, hey, how's the leg? He goes, broken. I went, ah. oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, in that real dry sense of humor, you know. You know, you mentioned uh, Sly and the Family Stone. Sly, I've, I've got a story about him. When we first signed, this is before we were uh, called Harper's Bazaar. We were called the Tiki's. We signed with a small record label in San Francisco called Autumn Records that was run by uh, Big Daddy Tom Donahue and um, um, one of his partners. And uh, at the time, they had, as a in-house producer of this small company, Sylvester Stewart, who later changed his name to Sly and the Family Stone. Well, when we were playing, we we played basic rock and roll sort of along the lines of maybe uh, Beatles songs. We weren't doing anything that sounded like feeling groovy, nothing at all like that. But uh, so they, uh, uh, Big Daddy said, I want to send you into the studio with uh, uh, Sylvester Stewart and see if he can come up with some tunes. Anyway, we went into the studio and he and us might as well have been on two different continents. We, we didn't think alike at all. And in addition to that, he brought in with him into the studio. He had two Great Danes. And these dogs were, you know, and even when they sat down, they were like four feet tall. Anyway, the, the whole thing didn't work at all. It turned out to be an exercise in futility, but that's my, my uh, Sly and the Family Stone story. Let me jump into something else. You know, we'll see if you, I'm not sure if you're going to want to go here or not, but let me ask you this. For listeners in my time frame, I was born in 1945. You may be a couple years older than me. I can't remember. I'm 72. Okay, all right, so we're a year apart. But we can remember back in the day when we were as fit as a fiddle. Now, as aging baby boomers, we probably no longer look much like Jack LaLanne. If you're up for talking about it, how's your health nowadays? My health is fine. I uh, have dodged a few bullets. I've always been able to do my shows. Never, never had to cancel it. Well, one time I had to cancel Back in 2000, I had a, a little blockage, and I was in Oklahoma at the time, but they stuck a stint in there, and I went on for, you know, till 15 years, you know, and everything was just fine, you know, things were fine. I'm noticing now that when it's time to play a show, I can play the show the same way I always did, 
but I'm also noticing that there's 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 a few things that are a little painful. A little um, I do my own work around the house here when I'm doing something heavy. Like I just I just got through building a garden and I had to take ten yards of topsoil okay. up a hill oh, to geez. dump into the dump into the boxes, and I had to take them up in buckets. It took me like four days. And I was exhausted going up this hill carrying two buckets full. And it's heavy. But I just jump into that stuff and then I pay for it later. You know? Well, it sounds like the, the body's still pretty much cooperating, but like you say, you do pay for it later. It does cooperate. I love my little ibuprofen. It seemed to help things oh, out. Yeah, right. And, and uh, well, I had, a, I, last year, I lost a lot of energy. I couldn't. For some reason, I would walk 50, 60 feet, and I had to stop. And I couldn't walk up a hill. I couldn't go up a set of steps. I had to stop halfway. So I went to my friend. I got a good buddy. He's a doctor. I said, what's going on here? And so he did EKG, and they found out that I had what's called AFib. AFib. AFib is a irregular heartbeat that needs medication. It's... Your heart beats in a rhythm, and all of a sudden, that rhythm is interrupted. So it might beat, you know, boom, 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 you know, irregular. So there's medication for that, and the, the cardiologist told me, says, you can live 100 years with AFib if you take the right medicine. So I do take that medicine. So far, everything's going good. They do shock you, which jumps the heart back into what they call sinus rhythm. And they gave me that shock, and it, it worked for about a week, and then I was back in the AFib again. Well, there's further measures that can be taken. One is called, I think, elation. And they go up into your vein and go up into the heart, and they find the little electrode that's causing this interruption, and they carterize it until you're back now in sinus rhythm. And I've talked to them about doing that, but nothing too serious. He's got me on some medication. Everything seems to be fine. Well, yeah, you mentioned shocking. Was it shocking? Did it? Did you jump? I mean, what kind of a shock? I went in the hospital and, and checked in and got in the room here and laid on the table. And then the doctors came in with their little shock machine. He gave me a shot and I went out Okay. for about one minute. And while I was out, that's when they shock you. And yeah, when you see on TV the body that jumps up in the air. Yeah, right. Well, that, I'm sure that went on, but I had no no recollection of anything. I laid down. Next thing I knew, I was awake. And my, my girlfriend said, oh, you were only out for like 30 seconds. It's just enough to put you out. And then they go, boom, and you come out. And I was fine. I was in sinus rhythm. Great. Yeah. About a week later, I went to my friend, the doc again, and he threw another EKG on there. And he goes, ah. I think you're back in, in uh, AFib. And so I've, I've done a lot of research on AFib, and there's millions of people with AFib. All right, so it's common. Yeah, it's very common. Yeah. But that was it. But that when that, <clears throat> when that energy zap happened, I had a show to do here called The Pig Out in the Park, and I had to cancel. And it just taped me up. I couldn't believe I actually canceled the show for the first time in 50 years. Yeah. Gee. Well, since then, I've been back to do two of the pickups. And I'm doing shows, and I go sit in around town, you know. I'll go do six, eight songs, and 
play drums for a whole set. It's effortless. It's really just fine. So, but I, I the one thing I don't like doing is taking the medicines that I take. You know, a little blood pressure this. And oh yeah. A little blood thinner that. You know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I wish I could get off of it, but. You know, I've asked the docs, when can I get off? And they say, probably never, you know. Well, this, all of a sudden, will I just fall over and croak? Says, well, <laughs> some people do, yeah. but ASIN in itself doesn't mean you're doomed. Well, that's uh, that's good to know, yeah, and I take a couple of different meds, too. I think everybody that is on medicine probably would love to say, hey, I'm off this stuff now, yeah. uh, particularly yeah. the, in my case, type 2 diabetes. I'm not taking heavy-duty medication, but it would be nice if I could figure a way with uh, diet and exercise to not have to take meds, but who knows? I go walking. You know, I try to go three miles every day. That's great. Some days I skip, but I'll put on my headphones and just take off and, and go walking. It only takes an hour. Your musical tastes changed a lot from the '60s, or what? Do you, what kind of music do you listen to now? You know, I have Pandora on, in my house, and a lot of times when I'm, you know, doing things around the house, in and out, I'll turn on uh, Pandora and I'll go to Ray Charles Radio or Aretha Franklin Radio. Uh, sometimes I put on just love songs station, and uh, when I walk, I I do the radio in my ear, and I listen to the local station to listen to what all the kids and, and everybody's listening to, the, the top station, and I'll just walk and listen to what they do and, and kind of pick up on things, and, and the music has changed so much. Oh, geez, yeah. All the, all the songs of today are so... Soundy, you know they 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 have a lot of different kind of sounds that are not produced by instruments. It's a lot of computer generated stuff, especially the the beats and the rhythms. And what's happened now is is live bands from well, 60s, 70s, even 80s. Crowds go to places and they don't really want to. They don't really care about having a band on stage. That much they have they have these disc jockeys. And the jock keeps that doom, 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 doom. Keep that beat going all the time, and they put different songs in there. The young people are kind of grooving on who they're going to make out with tonight. Yeah. <laughs> you know, have a beer or whatever. And it's just because I was in Paris, France, visiting a lady, and I said, well, let's go to a couple of clubs. Well, God, the clubs are so small, I could put them inside my living room. And I said, isn't there any big clubs? She said, oh, yeah, right down the street, there's probably 15,000 people in there. I said, well, who's playing there? I said, oh, it's just disc jockeys. Just disc jockeys, yeah. So, and some of these disc jockeys get paid, you know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand 50,000 a night because they just connect with the young people. You go look at South, the South Beach, the uh, uh, spring breaks. All that music is disc jockey stuff. You know, they make these playlists. And then they boom through these huge sound systems, and everybody's happy. So Completely different than what we remember 50 years ago. What's been your most challenging experience, regardless of whether you achieved it or not? The thing, the thing that you found to be your biggest challenge? You're challenged all the time, aren't you? Get through the day, get a job done, have fun, go out. I mean, it's all a challenge, and I'm happy to say that, uh, like I said, I'm here right now. So I must have met the challenge. 
I've tried to learn how to play piano. I've tried to learn how to play guitar. I gave up on it because I just don't have the 40 years and starting out at 10 years old on another instrument. But when it comes to drums, I feel real good about that. I've made that. I've gotten to where I need to get with that. And, and so my challenges now are trying to stay healthy and trying to uh, just have a lot of fun with people and, and uh, not get too much drama in relationships and stuff like that, which never never seems to work. <laughs> right, exactly. Speaking of which, what are you doing nowadays and what are your plans for the future? You know, I've been on the road 50 years, and I've traveled, and I've played probably every circumstance you can be in while playing music. And So I go into a place, no matter what it is, and I just go, hmm, been here, done this. And I don't fluff it off, you know, I, I go for it, but there isn't much, any. there isn't a lot of surprises. You know, I get up in the morning, and I've take a look at what I got to do if there's any important phone calls to get going. Then I'll usually go walking, you know, and then I'll come back and I have a studio in my house and if I feel inspired, you know, I'll work in the studio. If I don't feel like it for a day or two, I don't. You know, I just, just kind of live and let my nose, go where my nose goes, you know. And I like to do shows. I wish there were more of them, but, you know, back in 07, 08, when the economy took a big nosedive. A lot of the shows that, that we were doing, we were doing 100 shows a year. Oh, geez. A lot of those festivals and city street fairs and all that stuff, they, a lot of them shut down. Even state fairs shut down. And so other musicians that I know, singers all over the country, everybody is kind of like, gee, there isn't a lot of work. And part of the reason is, is because Time is time, and it's marched on. And when we're a product of the 60s and 70s, my gosh, you know, that's 40 years ago. And, you know, for the same reason when I was a young kid, and my dad was telling me that Stan Kenton, Guy Lombardo, Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, there was a time in his young years where they could go hear those bands and dance, and there were ballrooms and everything. And then we came along, and we were in nightclubs. And nowadays, gosh, I don't know where the people go. They go somewhere because they don't come to the clubs. And older people don't go out a lot. They don't say, oh, we got to get down to this club. Some do, but most of them don't. So even when you record something, you know, I've, I've got a new album out called Is What It Is. And I think there's songs on the album that are as strong as anything I've ever done. Well, you know, people... They don't hear it because it's not in a rotation. It's hard to get it on the radio. But, you know, Bruce Springsteen and Paul McCartney and you know, one guy from Michigan, uh, Bob Seger, they can't get new material played. They have the, the classic rock stations. And I was talking to a very wise guy who's been in the business 50, 60 years. He said, the only way. That it, they'll still play all those artists' songs from yesteryear but they don't play nothing new. So I come up with this idea. I said, man, if we could only do it, and we can't, if you could only get all those artists to issue a letter saying you're not allowed to play any more of my songs unless you mix in some of my new stuff. Well, 
that would do it if you could pull that up. It's impossible to pull that up. Because on these classic rock stations, they're playing the same stuff all the time that's appealing to the older people. And these guys at the stations, they're making a salary. They got a house. They got kids, a wife, a boat. They're enjoying working for that classic rock station. They're paid pretty good. Well, if you all of a sudden says, no, you can't play any of my old stuff without playing new stuff, they're out of a job. So nobody speaks up for the new material. And I've heard new material by a lot of artists, and it's great stuff, but it's not going to happen because then was then, and now is now, and it's a different thing. And every generation finds their own thing. And we don't always understand it. Just like my dad didn't understand what I saw in, in, in Little Richard or Elvis or anything, because he was thinking Glenn Miller, Guy Lombardo, Benny, Benny Goodman. Then I had my Sly and the Family Stones, Jimi Hendrix, blah, blah, blah. And now they've got their own. What is it? I don't know. It's kind of rap stuff. Well, you know, what's interesting, you talk about just the whole idea of getting new stuff played talked to a guy yesterday you remember uh the song elusive butterfly by bob lind that was sometime in the 60s and it was a big hit record he i'm gonna have him on the show but one of the things he said was i gotta talk about what i'm doing now i've got two new albums out and i said hey fine you know let's let's talk about it let's go there but i i think people like yourself are all saying essentially the same thing yeah we've got the stuff that we did 50 years ago but i also got stuff i'm doing now and you know how do you get it out there how do you get people i don't know well there was you know i did this album called it is what it is and i worked with a guy who is a uh, I think he's brilliant. He's, he's worked for ABC, CBS, NBC commercials mostly, and I did. I sang commercials for him back in the '90s. I always wanted him to make records. He's that talented. So we finally did an album uh, a couple years ago. It's my latest album. It's called "It Is What It Is," and I wrote almost all the songs with him. And I think a lot of the songs are really good. So I, here I spent. 40, 50 years of getting to a point where I could actually write songs now. Now there's no one to hear them. <laughs> yeah. Now, on uh, your latest album uh, available on Amazon? Oh, yeah. But you can get it on iTunes and CD Baby. But my, but the best place to get it, really, is on my own website, PeterRivera.com. Yeah, PeterRivera.com. And they can just order One it or two hours. And it's called It Is What It Is. It Is What It Is. Okay, great. I will check that out myself. And we have, uh, we could probably go on for, uh, I'm sure, much longer. I run into this every time. Uh, we just, we get past the, the available time frame. But... So uh, you and I, well, we need to connect. We will reconnect at some point down the line. Okay, I want to find out how that album is doing. And uh, in the meantime, I want to just say again, thank you very much. A lot of great memories, a lot of great recollections. And have I, I can't remember if I asked you, are you thinking about writing a book or is that not in the cards? I did write a book. Oh, you did? Yeah, that's on my website, too. It's called Born to Wander, and I... I wrote it from the start of everything up to where Rare Earth finally came to an end. And I didn't go on from there because, you know, it's not that important really what's happened since then. And there isn't enough information to write a book, and I would not do it. But I knew how to reflect on Rare Earth. 
It's all about the Motown and the gigs and the shows and the drugs and the stuff that happened. I self-financed it. I had hard copies made. I had 3,000 of them made. I've only got about three or 400 of them left. I gave them away. I sold them on my website. I took them to shows and sell a few there. But I never had like a publisher and it's not going to be in a bookstore. And then some people get the book and I have a little thing on the order form that you can say, oh, you know, to Dick, keep on rocking, you know, and I'll write that on the book. And some people said, oh, no, I don't want my name, just your name. Well, sure enough, now I see autographed copies of Born to Wander on Amazon for like $80. Really? Oh, okay. Or $150. Yeah. yeah, and I think, God got yeah. it. So now I've made it a point when anybody orders a book, I always put their name down. Got it. Today, today. All right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, again, so yeah. we're talking PeterRivera.com. It's just as simple as that. Yes, one or two hours. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, so, again, thank you so much. We shall talk again in the future. And uh, Okay, Dick. Until then, have some more good times on the road. Thank you. Stay healthy now. All right. I will. Okay. I want to tell you about next week's guest. Anybody remember the song Peppermint Twist? It was made famous by a group playing at the Peppermint Lounge on 45th Street in New York City. And you can probably guess who's going to be with us next week. Joey D and the Starlighters. We're going to hear about all the celebs who jammed that club to dance the peppermint twist. So join us for Joey D next week. As some of you probably already know, the America's Oldies But Goodies podcast is now on iTunes, Stitcher.com, and iHeartRadio. And in another couple of weeks, I will have my own app, uh, which you'll be able to get through the iTunes App Store and the Google Play Store for Android phones. As Chris mentioned earlier in the show, you need to visit my website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com, and not only take a listen to the archive of all of our shows, but uh, check out all of the retro and vintage merchandise available there. For example, we're featuring a John Lennon rare self-caricature and a Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer signed photo from the 1965 Masters. There's also all kinds of uh, restaurant quality tiki mugs in various shapes and sizes. So much of the stuff that we remember from the 60s, you'll find it all at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. You can also email me with your suggestions on what guests you'd like to have on the show. I'd love hearing from you with any ideas that you've got. So until next week, keep your face and a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The Swingin' 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then. Bye.